We're going through a series in the book of Ephesians. Before we get there, I want to just kind of update some things that are going on in the background I thought I'd throw out to us. Uh, You know that we just closed out a series on church and society a few weeks back, but it seems like I constantly find more and more stuff to read on the subject, so I wanted to just throw something out to you to show you that we're still paying attention to what's going on. There's a new book that just came out. This is by Michael Gerson, who was one of Bush's speechwriters, and he's written a book where his basic premise is Christians should not retreat from politics. We actually have a duty to remain engaged in politics. So you remember that I was citing from J.D. Hunter, who was kind of saying we don't really have a shot. Maybe we really need to find some other places. We looked at Hauerwas and other new Mennonite-type ideas about maybe just standing apart, being distinct. Here's somebody who critiques the religious right, even though he was a member of the Republican Party and a a speechwriter for Bush, critiques them lightly and then goes in to say it would be a mistake for us to leave politics. So for people who are on that side of the equation and wanted some reading material, here it is. It's City of Man by Michael Gerson. That's something you can follow up on. This is a subject that I don't think goes away because we could barely capture it in six weeks. You remember we read six books in six weeks just to kind of scratch the surface of such a large topic as to what Christians should do with politics and society. Uh, I'm not reading this book, so I won't read it. I'm not going to summarize it for you. You can read this one on your own if you want. Uh, Another interesting book that's come out is a book by, uh, I don't know if it's Drew Dick or Drew Dyke. Either way, bad for him. (laughs) I don't know whichever way you say his name. Probably not the best name. For a Christian author. But that aside, he's written a book called Generation X Christian. And uh, it's been getting a little bit of play because it deals with your generation. And I just wanted to raise this because you could file this under why does Exodus exist. In the article in Christianity Today that's written about him in this book, it says, according to Rainer Research, approximately 70% of American youth drop out of the church between the ages of 18 and 22. The Barna Group estimates that 80% of those reared in the church will disengage by the time they're 29. We've talked about that before, specifically when we did a couple of our series before, like How to Ruin Your Life by 40 or What Do Non-Christians Think About Christianity. Those two series kind of address those topics. What's interesting is this paragraph where he, actually the author, is writing this. He says, another unsettling pattern emerged during my interviews. Almost to a person... The leavers, those are the people that he he calls leave the church. The leavers with whom I spoke recalled that before leaving the faith, they were regularly shut down when they expressed doubts. Some were ridiculed in front of peers for asking insolent questions. Others reported receiving trite answers to vexing questions and being scolded for not accepting them. One was literally slapped across the face. So... As Jeremy indicated earlier, this is an interactive forum. The reason we do this is specifically to get around this. No one will slap you in the face here, it's a promise. But the idea is that we're going to go through a lot of stuff, including tonight, that I think somebody should raise their hand and say, I'm not buying that. And that's what we're here for, because if we don't work it out here, we'll work it out somewhere else. I'm just pointing out, it's one of those interesting things that I keep coming back to is why we do what we do. So let's press forward in Ephesians. Here's where we've been. We've looked at chapter 1. We've broken it down this way so far. First, we started with just the opening and the introduction that Morgan walked us through in the background of the letter. Then, we thought we would just skim through the doxology and got really grounded to a halt on the issue of God's calling and election. So that really kind of exploded out of nowhere for us. And then when we came back the following week to clean it up and had all the inventory, nobody seemed to care anymore. It was just that one week that we all had problems with election and call. The following week, everybody was totally okay with it. So, like all things, hard to predict where you guys are going to be. We walked through the Thanksgiving last week. And here's what I'd like to do to open in prayer this morning. I'd like to read the Thanksgiving again because chapter 2 kind of jumps right off the, the Thanksgiving and keeps going. So I want you just to, for a moment... Close your eyes, and I want you to hear as if Paul is reciting this thanksgiving to you, just so that you can hear these words as the people in Asia Minor might have heard them. This is our prayer this morning. Let's pray. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. 
I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So you can see that we leave at the end of this part this thanksgiving that he's actually saying. And in that time, somebody like me would have stood up and read this to the people who were hearing Paul's letters as they were circulated among the churches. They would have heard that orally, the way that you just received it. And it ends there, but it goes right into chapter 2. Remember, we're the ones that made the chapter and verse demarcations. It just goes right forward. So from this place where we come, this description of who Christ is and who we are in him, we go directly in to chapter 2. Let me read that for us. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us through Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Anyone have a problem with any of that? Good, let's go home. You guys came to short Sunday. Isn't that great when you go to church and there's like almost no sermon? That's like a good Sunday, right? So today's short Sunday. There's nothing to talk about in this verse at all. And that's exactly what I think the problem is when we read a book like Ephesians, especially when we're in the midst of a doxology and a thanksgiving. Paul uses such beautiful language and expresses things that we, for a moment, surrender our reading abilities. Paul is just talking about incomparable riches and glory and grace and God, and we're just thinking, what is this all for? Isn't it for some worship song somewhere? Isn't that what we use it for? So I started imagining what would this be like if we made it into a worship song, right? (laughs) Took this verse and just... Put it up on a screen where most Christians mindlessly hold their hands up, right, and say whatever words you put on a PowerPoint, and worship the PowerPoint screen like it was God himself. My theory is if we put words on a PowerPoint, you could put heresy and we would sing it, and if the song sounds good enough, you'd raise your hand and do something like this, right? That's always been my theory. But that's kind of my theory about how we read Paul, especially in a doxology especially in a series about thanksgiving. I took the first few verses of chapter 2 and just put them up on the screen kind of in that song format, as you can see. And what makes it a Christian worship song, of course, is that part at the bottom where it says, repeat ten times. That's how you know it's a Christian worship song and not any other song. is because you have to sing it over and over until you wear it out. Is this what we do when we read Paul? Do we just say words like transgressions and kingdoms and gratify? We just say those things? How about at the end there, like, God's great love, rich in mercy, alive in Christ, it's by grace we've been saved. Do those words at all scandalize you? Do they stand out? Are they sharp? That's what I want you to do tonight with me, is I'm just going to walk through just these verses, and I want to see if we really believe this. 
Philip a number of weeks ago says, you know, the problem is some of us don't believe this, but we just move right on. I think that was a good call out, that we actually just look at things and just recite them and we nod. Now remember, Paul is not instructing here. He's talking about God and he's being descriptive of who God is and he's giving thanks for God and thanks for those who are receiving the letter because of what God has done. But I don't think that's any reason that we should just kind of give up. So let's take this thing one verse at a time. I want to hear from you for a moment. Let's start from here. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. Paul is saying that if you do not have Christ, you are dead. And before you came to Christ, you were dead. You were like the living dead, the walking dead. That you had no life. That's what he's saying. You believe that? How many people believe that, honestly? You look at people right now who do not know Christ and you say, you're dead. That this life that, you, that looks like you have is not really life. It's like living dead. That's the meaning that anyone hearing this letter would have pulled out. But we kind of skim right through that, and I want to know if you really buy that. Yeah. Um, it says that God is love, you know, and so it's like if they are loving in a, in a true way, then in some way they do, they are responsive to God. And, and just, you know, that makes sense to me, if they are loving. So if they express love, they're expressing... They know God without knowing Him. Without making the choice to follow Him and like surrender their lives to Him, they still are experiencing God. So you don't buy this. I mean, He's not making that exception. He's not saying, unless you love. I think they're lost. I don't think they're Christians, but I think that they're maybe in process or on their way. Their heart is open to being drawn toward God and pushed away from Him. Yeah, so I would say they're not saved, but they're malleable. Yeah, and notice he's not talking right now about salvation yet, he will. They're clearly not Christians, because that just means to believe in Christ. He's just saying, you were dead in your transgressions. And I don't mean literally dead, like they're not zombies. I just mean that they're dead as to the life that was meant for them, and they will be dead in the future probably with no hope. Yeah. I think what's difficult for me is um, saying in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. And I think most people who would even, like any of us who claim to be Christians, say, yeah, we still sin. And so it, it, it just seems that it's not a, just a used to live in which we follow the ways of this world. Like, that, that that's still part of who we are. So I think that's, at least for me, one of the difficulties that comes up is that he's creating this, like, separation. Like, you were dead in your transgressions since when you were like this. Like, but now it's not. It's difficult because it doesn't seem like that there's an ending of sin. When this sort of paints it, there is. Yeah, and I have to explain that. Right, you're right. I was just going to point out that, like, when you follow the way of the world part, because that can happen, even if you are a Christian, like, you can sort of not cleave to Christ. So I think it comes down to, like, how intimate your relationship with Christ is how like disciplined you are with like being in his presence um, because you can be a Christian will have Christian beliefs and follow the ways of the world and that's why people sometimes talk about having like the joy of their salvation restored and like they feel like they were a walking dead Christian even but like God will come back in and you feel alive again when like you're putting time into your relationship with Christ so you're definitely dead when you're far from Christ but only because I know what that feels like. So and we can't preach from our personal experiences, but I'm just saying, like, whether you're a Christian or not, I just think it has to do with, like, your relationship with Christ. I think what's already happening, by the way, is we're already reading a lot into these two lines, right? We've already started to do it. We've already started to shade what we think they mean uh, to somehow live with them or ignore them. I mean, it's one or the other. We start to do that. Anyone else? Yeah. I was just going to say, I think um, part of what Alyssa was saying that I would acknowledge is when she was saying that when you look at non-Christians and Christians, non-Christians, they can display the love of God. And I think that's the image of God that holds true for everybody. But I do agree with what I think you're saying. It's that that's a 
separate issue from what this is. Yeah, and we'll, of course, I've zeroed in on just a verse, right? So we're going to expand it and start building with the rest of it. I just want to see if we even agree with these first couple lines because Paul in this passage in particular, I mean, let's just talk about the rules of interpretation. It doesn't mean anything and it doesn't mean nothing. It's got to mean something. We just have to figure out what that means. He's going to be building this case as we walk through this carefully now that we're actually analyzing the words as you're going to belong to someone. You're going to belong to Christ. Remember, his whole theology in Ephesians is being in Christ or you're going not to be in Christ, and he would paint that as you followed the ways of this world. He's talking about a world system of belief, okay, that you belong to that. So that that word world can be interpreted a number of ways, but in this context means kind of your ideology and system of belief. So you're following what the world does in that classic sense. Let's build a little bit further. We've laid down Colossians 1 a couple of times because it seems like there's a parallel, right? And so here it is once again in that, in that context of death. Once you were alienated from God is the parallel that he makes there. So there's an alienation. Maybe that death, as you're trying to understand it, is that way of like we were alienated from God. We were enemies, okay, because of evil behavior. All right? And then, of course, he says, but now Christ has reconciled you whose physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, all those things. So I just want to lay down that there, there are places that he has talked about this. It's in 1 Corinthians, it's in Colossians, it's in different places that we see at least that concept. It's not like it's unique here. He's repeated it over and over. So you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. What is Paul talking about? I mean, we skipped right over this. This was in our worship song. We're all going to sing this, right? What is Paul talking about? We followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. What's Paul talking about? Devil. Devil. And he demurs to that? Anyone disagree? He's talking about something else? Well, how many people believe there is a devil? Raise your hand high if you're proud. You believe in the devil. Anyone, anyone just believe that this is nuts, that he's not talking about, there's no such thing? Somebody. Is he waiting for a third choice? <laughs> How many people actually believe that part of what is holding us down and keeping us in disobedience is a spiritual entity like Satan or the devil? People believe that? You know, one observation about this that's made when you go through this passage is a lot of people just, you know, they say, sure, but they don't buy it much. And I want to be very careful. Because if you look at the whole of the scriptures from beginning to end, even the New Testament, which spends more time, more time being very little still, the emphasis is more on us and our responsibility and our sin and our rebellion. It's rarely focused on the spiritual being, Satan, But he is referenced. And the reason I bring it up is because we could skip right through this in our worship song and not really actually focus on what Paul is saying. And I want to know if you really think that that could be the factor. Because some of us, we acknowledge that there might be this devil. We say, oh, sure, yeah, I think this Satan is there. But we actually don't give any real thought to whether that's a factor in what he's describing. Morgan? Well, it also ties in the previous statement with the kingdom of the air with the ways of this world. Like, I think there are there are numerous sins, I think, even in every culture that are different, um, that are more prominent than others. So we've identified numerous times in the screen materialism, right? And so that's a deeply rooted structural sin. And so um, there is a spiritual nature to that. And it's not surprising to see Paul talk about something or to... To simply think that only humans created that isn't smart. You know, it doesn't seem to be what the scriptures teach as well. So there isn't an overemphasis on these things, but we should also clearly see in daily living, there's quite there's a large aspect of spirituality that's present, and that's what I think he's tying together. Okay. Joseph, do you have a comment? Yeah. I mean, I guess I've always worked upon you know, the devil works in those who are disobedient, but those who are willfully disobedient anyway, and their own personal responsibility, why does he even need to bother with them? Why does he need to spend the time? Okay. I'm going to leave it there because I think the emphasis is not very strong on Satan anyway in Scripture. We've kind of addressed spiritual warfare in a different series. 
I will point out that in this kind of first century mindset, there was kind of the earth, the heavenly realms, and there was the air where spiritual things took place. You could alternatively, if you're not going to stake your belief in a personhood of Satan, some sort of specific identifiable spirit, you could stake your belief in just the idea that this is also saying that in the spiritual realm that there is an oppression of sin. So that the disobedience, so you're belonging here to the realm and the spiritual oppression of sin. Again, Paul would be more concerned to say, look, you either belong to Christ or you belong to the world or to sin or to the devil or whatever you want to call it. His main point is to set up that contrast. You're either in Christ or you're dead or you're disobedient or you're living in the world. You can call it a number of different things. So I want to say that if you're not the person who says like, yes, I have to believe in Satan. I mean, I think that it's scriptural. But that's not really his point, and that's why we're not going to stick much on that point. I just want to point out that we, again, skip through these words without focusing that that's most likely what he's pointing to. But even if it doesn't, he's setting up that contrast. In Christ or not. Next verse. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh. That word flesh, sarx, is actually better, well, not, it's, it's correctly translated flesh. But its meaning is the sinful nature, so that we're not just focusing on the word flesh as we might understand it in the cravings of our flesh. Gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. I don't think I'm going to get many people who are going to say that at one time we did this. But look at it carefully. Do you think that it ceased for us? Do you think it stops Because we kind of, when we read this, we're buying it hook, line, and sinker. At one time, we were gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. If we really sat in honesty, aren't we still, for the most part, doing that? How seriously do we take the idea that we should be revolted by sin, that we should be doing everything we can to get out of the, the bondage of sin, And I think for me it highlights how we kind of feel in some way that like there is this get out of jail free concept that we've kind of bought into. That now that we're in Christ, we don't have to worry about this anymore. We don't have to worry anymore at all about what's really going on because we feel like we're past that. That would be a problem if you didn't know Christ. That would be a problem if you weren't in Christ. But think about that for a moment. What are we saying? That if we're in Christ that we can go on gratifying our sinful nature? Like, that seems actually perverse. Yeah. And it wouldn't make sense of all of Paul's writings. I mean, he spends, and we're going to see later in this letter, that he spends a lot of time telling you, stop doing some of these things. And so he's making a point, I think, here, that there is an allegiance shift, um, that hopefully in Christ, that even though you're going to struggle with certain things, even though... Certainly, uh, you know, First John tells us if, if we say we're without sin, we're lying, right? So he's not overturning such teeth. They're really not contradictory. It's just simply that there should be an allegiance change, and there should also hopefully be a lot of growth and progress in the lessening of sin in our lives and things like that. Yeah, but I think Philip's point earlier is really good. Like, once you were dead in transgression and sin, right, and he was saying it's not like that stopped. And... If we just skip through this really quickly, it almost sounds like, yes, we're agreeing with the idea that at one time we were doing that. And in reality, really, it still plagues us. Yeah. I think there's a process. And going back to that first person, you're getting your transgressions. We got into a little bit of that. It seemed like it was a black and white, and there's a gray area for the process. You think it's a process to become alive? I I think it's a process of moving from that simple desires and um, becoming the new person going to that point. Okay, Megan? I, I think before you encounter God in any way, if you ever think about whether you're dead or alive, you are not dead in a way. So I guess like even though we might like dip back into that dead place, and even though we can't always say that we're alive, like I, I don't think you would ever ask that question. Like I don't think that you would ever have like a bad day of being close to God, or I don't know how to express it very well, but I feel like just even being like the worst Christian possible, you're still more alive than when 
you're, you weren't even conscious of God at all. Okay, Jason? Um, I find it interesting, the sentence right before where it says the spirit who is now at work, because we, we often, when, we're talk, when we think about the spirit who is at work, rather than gratifying the cravings, we're, we're being sanctified. Um, and so I think process is a good word. But there's this, this spirit who's at work in those who are already disobedient, bringing them further into death. And there's the spirit who we now have who's taking us away from those cravings that would bring us into death. Okay, let me just put this out there for you to think about. The difference between a transformation of you're a new creation, you're a new life, versus a process of that happening may be an emphasis on who's doing the changing. Is it God changing you instantaneously and making you a new creation? Or are you focusing on you somehow changing over time? Just think about that as we go forward. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Do people who do not find themselves in Christ deserve wrath? Everyone agree? I mean, we kind of just skipped right through this. It was fun. Doing our little reading of Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. Deserve wrath? Yes. I'm doing a lot of reading in the Old Testament lately, which I, I really like. It's really evident that people outside of, of God deserved wrath in God's eyes, but people that were also in relationship with God deserved wrath in God's eyes. So that's what I'm struggling with here. Because like the rest, we were by nature deserving of it. Yeah, absolutely. Because we have Christ's grace. He may not give it to us, or at least maybe not in the end. But our actions have consequences. And like I really believe even now that I deserve that. And like, and I think that's why, going back, tying it into feeling alive, why I feel so alive and why I'm blown away by my relationship with God and who he is, is because I still deserve that. And for whatever reason, he's not giving it to us because like we're in faith and communion with him and he, he loves us, but we still deserve it. Like not just then, like we do. We deserve wrath before, so others deserve wrath. Yes, no? Jill? This may be kind of tangential, but I think um, something that I've come across, and I think in myself and a lot of other Christians, is that we will see people outside the faith who are successful in the world's stance, and it seems like there's an attitude of, well, this is unfair, they're being blessed by God, and why don't I have those things? So I think that there's kind of a way of us putting upon them, well, they deserve God's wrath. They don't deserve God's blessing. And it's, it's kind of presumptuous to think that that's how God would bless people. Okay. Anyone else on this particular thing? I mean, this... I, I would think some of you really just don't believe this. Yeah, Philip? The thing that was just interesting, I guess it's even more looking at words, we didn't like fire nature deserving of wrath. I'm not sure what I think about this, but that's just a weird idea. It's sort of a little bit scary to me. Like, like God designed nature, like by nature, like by how it's designed. Like maybe not the right, maybe not the right meaning of nature. What it, what that word nature points to is by our constitution, by who we are, not by what we do, but by who we are. Like almost like when you look at it, it's human nature to be like this. He's using nature in that same kind of sense. So that the way we're constituted, we're deserving of wrath. And I believe, if I remember right, the deserving of wrath is actually a literal translation like sons of wrath. The Semitic language would use sons of as something like, like you're a son of perdition, like you're a son of Satan. Those kinds of things meaning your nature is such that you belong to him. You're identified with that same thing, not that you're literally born of them. Just that your, your nature is such that you are what they are. Hey, it's not such a happy song anymore, is it? <laughs> okay, yeah. Megan? Um, it's easy for me to understand, like, flat-out God-haters, like, baby killers, being <laughs> deserving of wrath. But when I think of just the uninterested agnostics, it, like, you know, or just, I, I don't know, it's hard for me to think of people who don't seem as, like, purely evil to deserve wrath. So I have a hard time understanding how that applies to all people, even though I know, like, theologically, it must. 
but it doesn't quite feel like God would be like, you, complacent person, I'm so wrathful towards you for your complacency. Yeah. Alyssa? I think it's more like um, because we aren't perfectly holy, like God has to keep himself holy. And like we see a lot in the Old Testament, um, he has to divide himself between him and the people. So it's not like, I think it's just it's just a, I can't stand the sin. I cannot tolerate sin. It's not, I don't think it's so much of like a, I hate you to stupid. I don't know. Do you get what I'm saying? I do. I do, and if I can use that as a jumping-off point to move us to the next snippet we're going to look at, maybe what you're referring to, for example, is like something like in Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah's vision is of the Lord being so holy that Isaiah can't even stand in his presence without being annihilated. We have that concept throughout the Old Testament, and I would say we have lots of evidence of the way that Jesus sets up that same thing, that God's holiness cannot tolerate sin in his presence. But I would say that that would almost let us off the hook a little bit because if you go back to Ephesians chapter 1, the point has been that it is God from the beginning who has chosen who are those people who are going to be in Christ who would then be able to stand in his presence, which makes it back to the first week that troubled us so much. Let me add this. So we were deserving of wrath, but because of his great love, Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. The focus is on God. The focus is on his action, not your reaction, if one was ever required. And this brings us back to where we really fell apart that first week. Or at least in chapter 1. About... What do we believe? Is anything required from us in response? When it says that, you know, God has done this thing, were we required to respond and say, yes, I accept it, or has he just done it? Is God acting alone, or is he acting in concert with us responding? If you take the first view that God just did this because of his great love, his mercy, He made us alive in Christ. We're not even in the picture. Except that it is by grace that we've been saved. Then you go back to that point that Monique was making about how we still are deserving of wrath. Like we should be so overjoyed that we were saved. That we are in Christ. That he gave us his grace. That he set up this whole thing. That he did this thing. Especially if you take the view that no response from us was even needed. And again, that's the debate that goes back and forth. But just think about how excited those words have to be. It is by grace you've been saved. Like as if the whole building was going to come down on us right now and just one or two of us was just randomly plucked out. And we're standing outside like going, I can't believe what just happened. And that excitement that he puts into that verse brings out a feeling that we should have about our own salvation in Christ. Just the fact that we are in Christ, that we know Christ, should be something that is so awe-striking in us. It should be something that moves us to the point that we exclaim this. Not that we just pause at it and say, yes, that's great, he gave me his grace, it's by grace. This isn't just setting up some dichotomy about, is it by works, is it by grace? It's amazing that we have even known Christ, that we're saved at all. Because there's a great chance that we weren't going to be saved at all. We deserved wrath. But because of him and his grace and his mercy, like we've been saved. And there's a feeling that that should still continue to move us daily into a place of worship. Like thinking, I can't believe it. Although maybe those words aren't exactly what you say. But just that you're in that place of awe for what God has done. Philip? I think, at least for me, like one of the problems that comes or that hinders that uh, from happening and having like being excited and like thankful and like awestruck by it is like well what about the people that aren't saved like this they're still in that deserving of wrath state so it doesn't like even like the idea you painted like we're all just standing out there and two or three people get plucked out like what about the rest like it's weird like I don't know what to do with it and I've been granted that's a huge problem and, or a huge issue um, that's not like this one verse is just talking about that, but I think 
At least that's why, at least for me, that response isn't what you're describing. And I like that. I mean, I don't like that that's the case. I like the way you articulated it because that's honest. That's real. I mean, sure, there's that moment where you're like, I can't believe I'm still alive. I just can't believe it. But we immediately start to think of everybody else. And I don't think that's strange. Maybe that will motivate some, something in us anyway. But I think that is the honest wrestling that people have. And you're right, we're not going to resolve that whole thing tonight. That requires a systematic understanding of salvation, probably, that's beyond this verse. And again, he's not instructing. He's actually just praising God for these things. But that's the very reason that I don't think we could ever just skip through these things in low. Let's just get on to that part where it talks about submission or whatever it is in Ephesians. Like, this is something that's it has gravity. It has weight. And I think you expressed it very well. Anyone else? Okay. If that salvation comes because of grace, because it becomes like being in Christ, what does that mean for us? How does it work? It's something that he's going to express throughout this book, but I think it's also something we should just be thinking about. We should be thinking in those ways, like, what is my response to the fact that this has been done by God? Entirely? Or even just that I had the chance to respond if you're in that camp. That God did everything and then I responded somehow to it. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Let's stop there even. That would sound good in a worship song too, wouldn't it? You raised me up with Christ and I'm seated. You know, like, you buy that? I mean, think about those words. We ever stop and read this stuff? We've been raised up? We're not even dead yet. How are we going to be raised up if we haven't even died? Is it like a guarantee that we will be? But that's not the tense. The tense is that we were previously raised up. We were raised up with Christ. Christ's already been raised up. He's not going to be raised up again. And seated with him. Like, if that's the case, I must have missed out on that part. Raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. How's that even possible? What's he talking about? Is Paul just singing and staring at the screen and just making up words? Like, what does this mean? Yeah. Well, I think if you're talking about a God who is outside of time, and you're talking about a Christ who died for us and paid for our sins altogether, I don't think that's strange. I don't think that doesn't make sense. That's true. There may be an aspect of this that's not really bound by something, but he's making specific references to being raised up with him and seated with him. And let me, let me contribute this to kind of move it forward. If we are in Christ, that's Paul's driving image here. Christ has been raised up and Christ is seated. Remember he talked about we're heirs. The Holy Spirit's been given as a deposit. We're guaranteed this to come, but it's not just about the future which is what he's going to talk about in the next phrase. But already we, because we are in Christ, and Christ has been raised, and Christ has been seated, we participate in that. We're already part of it because we're in Christ. The image of being in Christ is more than just what we think of it, like Christ is the head and we're the body, which means that like he's the boss and we're the legs and the arms that run around the world and do what he's saying. It means that we are unified with Christ. That's what Paul is going to repeatedly give us this image of. So because of that, we share in that glory. We share in that experience with him. Is it literally mean we've been raised in the past and seated already and we just don't know it? No. It's talking about it in that sense that because you're in Christ, this has already happened as if it had happened to you because you're in him. And now he's going to say, so that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Remember, Paul constantly has this idea of salvation being an event that brings us into right relationship with God. Justification. The idea of sanctification, like a lifelong process of us becoming more like Christ. Being transformed in every way. And then glorification, that place where we share in the glory in the future. And here he's giving us a hint of this in this verse of already in the past, because we're in Christ, so that in the future we will also experience this. 
Paul elsewhere says, those who have been justified will be glorified. This again is an encapsulation of his theology on this. In some way, you can see it painted just in his description. And again, he's not instructing, he's describing. Yes? Like the part that says, like, and seated us with him seems to definitely be like this idea of like a glorifying or like a position of like honor or whatever, which always kind of bothered me when it comes to me because like, I don't know, I don't feel like I deserve that place with Christ, but as far as like, and God raised us up with Christ, is that talking about the resurrection? Like the, the actual resurrection, like when Christ was raised from the dead, resurrected from the dead, so we are also like from his act on the cross, raised from the dead and are no longer living, like, dead through him. Yes, it is. And, of course, he is talking about it as something that happened in the past, which for us, or even for the people reading the letter, wouldn't have happened. But he's saying it in such a way, like, it's imputed in you because you are in Christ. One other thing that commentators say when they look at this passage is it's possible that Paul is actually reciting part of what may have been a baptismal him in this short snippet so you can almost see the picture of like how we even do it now like dead in your sins raised up with christ like we get that part so there's even that imagery involved in there in this part but even if that's not the case because we can't really establish it is the idea is his point is that being in christ is what makes us alive and we experience all these things even though we literally have not experienced resurrection or being seated in glory, he's saying, you are in Christ already. And this kind of gives a measure of how much that means, not just like, okay, so now I'll be good and somehow it'll all work out. He's talking about something that's way greater, which should bring us back to understanding how we even think about salvation. I know we've criticized it enough, the idea of just maybe reciting a few you know, prayers or a few statements or just saying some propositional set of beliefs in our mind like that is going to qualify. I think on the basis of these verses that we're looking, Paul would say, I don't think you understand what it means to be in Christ. And maybe that's what's going to begin to make this demarcation, not just that you propositionally believed a bunch of statements or said a prayer or raised your hand one day or went forward. Like that may be the start of understanding what it means to be in Christ, but this is the distinction. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. I think we've heard this verse a few times. And this verse we can look at and say, right, Paul is saying salvation through grace, through faith, not by works. That's what he's saying, right? This is that one that we use to hold up. It's the great... Catholic rebuttal, right? It's not by works, it's by grace. Faith alone, sola fide, that's what it is. Yeah, one of the things that you see in this passage is, it is true that he's repeating that recitation of grace through faith. But what is that measure of faith? Again, it's just what I was talking about. Is it just believing in in a prayer I think this measure of faith is literally throwing your whole life and trust and confidence and everything you have. In other words, being subsumed into Christ. Being in Christ. The point where it isn't just like, yes, I believe that in the future it would be better to believe in Jesus than the alternative. That's not being in Christ. That's not the character he's talking about. It is not from yourselves. Maybe because he spent Ephesians 1 talking about it's all God. It's all God. It's not from you. It is a gift of God, not by works. But here's the added verse we have to read in context with it. If we stop there, this would be really good. We would say that it's by faith, and that's the end. You just believe it, but you really, really believe it. Not just little believe it, but really, really believe it. And then you're in Christ, and that's the end of it, and there's nothing else that you need to do. Nothing. But you have to balance it with the verse that comes right after it. For we all are God's handiwork. Created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works. Which God prepared in advance for us to do. Not by works. So that we can do good works. 
And that's the crucial distinction that I think we sometimes miss when we skim through these verses. Our works are not for salvation. Our works are because of salvation. God may have appointed us from before time for salvation. That's what Ephesians 1 talks about. But he's also appointed us in advance for these works. The whole purpose of why we are in Christ is not just hell avoidance or heaven attendance. It's so that we can participate with God to do the works that he has for us to do. Paul specifically puts the word good in there to qualify. He's making a distinction. Not by the works that we would have that make us feel righteous. Not by the works that make us feel worthy. Not by the works that we work on to make ourselves feel like we've somehow participated in our own salvation. He's made it clear. You don't have a part. Maybe you respond. Maybe you don't. But you do have a part because of salvation. The good works that come. That you will do. Because that is what God has prepared us to do from the beginning, is to be his agents in this present life to do the work of God. Like that's a privilege that we even partner with God, that he gives us anything to do at all, that we have a place of being in partnership with him. That's his invitation, Philip. Uh, You made me think of this because you were saying, well, the good works is because of our salvation. and a lot of times, like I've heard the idea, it makes sense to me. Like, well, people do good works that aren't saved. I mean, but then you have like Jesus saying, no one's good, God. But you also have this idea of like, you say, well, for we are God's hand, you were created to do good works. Like, does that mean people who aren't given this gift are not created to do good deeds? Like, that they're not God's handiwork in that way? Like, not that they aren't created by God, but like, the people who would not be like, have faith in Christ, like, God doesn't desire them to do good works? Or didn't create them for that purpose? I think the emphasis would be slightly different. I think that it's saying that, that this was the intent of which we were created, to do good works. That's clear for everybody. Like the intent was for all to do good works. The question would be, probably if I would rephrase your question is, if you're not one of those people who's in Christ, are your works still good? If that's true, that he is talking not just about all people, but those who are in Christ then the proper way to understand this is that those who have been called to be in Christ, those people are God's handiwork created to do good works, which then doubly compounds the whole issue of the calling and the election that we struggled with. And that is possible to read it that way. Because it's not, it's, it's not like it's out of context. He set that up and then he's driven down to this point. I would also think that an alternative reading is that people are intended to be this way and some have rebelled and turned their back on him to not do this or some are not in Christ so maybe I don't know how you characterize their works. Okay, Monique? I think that's kind of like missing the point because like the point is that it's not works. So like if I were to kind of touch upon that question, yes, people that don't have Christ that do good works, I'm sure God likes that they're doing good works, and I would say those works are good, and they could be quote-unquote good people, whatever, but that's not the point. They're not alive, they're not alive in Christ. They don't have salvation. They don't they don't have that life. They don't ha- they haven't been resurrected. It's like, that's the point of this. So for me, what I take away from that is, if people that don't know Christ are doing good works, we better be doing good works because we know Christ. Like, we better be like submitting to that in our relationship and trying to grow and like do things for like God's kingdom but I think that's like missing the point because it's it's not the works and like works can be good and we should be showing good works but it's the salvation I think that he's focusing on okay Jeremy I can't really quite like peg questions that's kind of stirring around my head and it has something to do with that like, so we have to remain open to the possibility that, like, in Christ, all of these paradoxes and contradictions are maintained or uns- unsolved or we need to spend another thousand years thinking about it. I'm not trying to create more ambiguity, but I can't tell you how happy I am that we actually took these passages on and actually expressed some things about them rather than just read them, said amen, and went home. 
which is my temptation, and I think a lot of people's temptation when they read a long Thanksgiving section from Paul. So I'm thrilled. There's definitely some things we can pull out of this. If we're in Christ, then I think that the issue of us and the way we live now is something we should really think about. These passages do not paint a good picture of what our life was like before Christ, if any of us can remember that. But I think what's weird is it somewhat describes what our life is in Christ sometimes now, and that leads to the question of how seriously do we take that. I think these passages lend themselves, even though Paul is not telling anyone to do anything, in reading this, we kind of pull something out and go, I think there's something we should be doing. We should really take seriously the way that we live. I think far too many Christians feel like once I know Christ, I'm safe. Maybe it's because of the way that we talk to one another when we're on the street trying to convince one another to believe in Jesus. Like, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you do tomorrow. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And then like, somehow, I don't know where that comes from because I haven't seen a passage that says doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. You can just do whatever you want. In fact, that's not what that's saying. I don't see Paul saying that elsewhere either, or Jesus, saying, you know, once you know me, you can just sin your head off. Maybe the result might be the same. I don't know. I'm unsure that I would even say that with confidence. But I definitely don't see that sanctioned anywhere. For those of us who read this and just say, look, it's not by works, it's not by works, it's just through faith. Yes, it's a very definite character of faith. One that fits well. I mean, he wouldn't just come out of nowhere and just say, by the way, it's through faith. He's been talking about being in Christ. It's a measure of faith that is so deep that we become identified, put our whole life in him, trust him completely, give everything to him to be in Christ. That's the measure of faith he's talking about. Not just belief, but whole life trust. And so that we can do works. Not because of salvation, that's through God's grace, his gift, undeserved. Maybe not even with us in mind in our response. A lot of us are wrapped up in us and what we're doing and what we're able to do. And we're not focusing on the fact that there is a so that, that once we are in Christ, it's so that we can do these things. All right. So that's where I'm going to leave it. And next week we'll push on in chapter 2 a little bit further and go from there. But thank you for all those good comments. I think that's a really good way to wrestle with this passage. And for those of you who are still kind of wrestling, (laughs) uh, he'll resolve a little bit, I hope, as we push forward. Let's pray. Lord, in a week we're supposed to focus on thanksgiving. I'm thankful just for a place to meet. I'm thankful for this room and the people that are in it and the way that we approach your word. Lord, right now we should be thankful for just the fact that we know who you are, that we speak your name, that we have the opportunity to sit here and understand uh, what these scriptures are saying to us or just to wrestle with them. Lord, we should be overjoyed at the relief, just the saving grace that you have. Thank you, Lord, that you've saved us. We know who you are, that we have this opportunity. Lord, let us be mindful of the things that you have for us Let us look beyond ourselves and move into a wholehearted acceptance of who you are. And that includes, Lord, the things that you have for us to do. Lord, separate us from a spirit of idleness or selfishness or inward focus or any of these things, Lord, that keep us from being your handiwork. Pray this in your name. Amen.